0: Episode 113, Gina Cox, founder and CEO of Feels Human, Inc. Oh, my favorite mistake, and it's so vivid. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For links, show notes, and more including information about Gina's upcoming book, you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake113. Thanks for listening. If you like the episode, please share it with a friend, email it to him, post it on social media. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks. And our guest today is Dr. Gina Cox. She is an industrial psychologist, an executive coach, author, and speaker. She has advised corporate leaders for over 20 years on how to build organizational cultures that support innovation inclusion, and employee engagement. So before I tell you a little bit more about Gina, let me first say thank you to the podcast. Uh, Thank you and welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: And Mark, it's really great to be here. I'm so excited to talk with you today and I hope I have some ideas that will be useful for your audience.
0: Yeah, well, I know there will be. Um, It'd be good to hear your story and there'll be a lot of topics um, that that we are going to cover here. So let me just um, give the audience a little bit more uh, info about, again, Dr. Gina Cox. She is the founder and CEO of Feels Human, Inc. You can learn more at feelshuman.com. Uh, in terms of being a writer, she's a contributor to HBR, and she's the author of an upcoming book due out in 2022 titled Leading Inclusion. Uh, she earned a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology from the University of South Florida. So, uh, congratulations in advance. The book, is is the writing done and now it's going through the whole publication process?
1: Yeah, what they call that messy first draft when you think you're a genius, but the editor doesn't 100% agree with you. So for right now, I'm going to pretend like I don't know what's happening in surgery <laughs> with my book.
0: <laughs> you want to just wake up and have the book be done.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, that, it's an exciting time. So I uh, yeah. look forward to seeing um, the book when when it comes out. So, um, Gina, um, you know, before we talk about other things, we always like to jump right in. What would you say is your favorite mistake?
1: Oh, my favorite mistake, and it's so vivid because one of the things I had the pleasure to do as I was working on writing my bookmark was I had the opportunity to interview the CEO. Uh, a gentleman who was the CEO and chairman of the company at which I worked when I made my favorite mistake. And he's one of my all time favorite leaders. And actually, that's a part of what is my biggest mistake is that I once left employment at a company, not because I had a problem with my job, or I wasn't being promoted or any of those things. I left this job because I wanted a little more um, flexibility to take care of somebody. I'd been divorced, I had a young daughter. I wanted a certain kind of flexibility. And I think I also just wanted some room to sort of figure out what the world was like on my own terms. So I made this rather... Not impulsive, but now in retrospect, sort of cavalier self-absorbed decision that I would leave this job. And as the years have gone by, my biggest mistake I realized is that I left a place that I absolutely loved and was never able to replicate that experience.
0: That's that's interesting. Did you leave the company, that company to start Feels Human Inc., or were there other steps?
1: There were that this was actually many, many years ago, right after it was the first job I held after I had a PhD. And so one of the things that I understood was that I didn't really know exactly what the world was really, I didn't know everything I needed to know. And in some ways, I left this job because I wanted to just explore other other pastures, other avenues. And as I said, you know, sort of implied in my earlier comment what 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 I realized, but only in retrospect was I never found an organization where the leaders were as, where I trusted the leaders as much, where the culture was as inclusive and welcoming and and truly supportive of of individual desires and so on, and where I made as many friends as I made. Mm -hmm. I still have friends to this day from that company. There was just something special about
0: the place that in that moment, I didn't fully appreciate. Does it does it fall in the category that decision of um thing there there's a, a song um that's in my head, you you don't know what you've got till it's gone?
1: Yeah, it's definitely one of those. Though, so as I mentioned before, I have been lucky enough that over the years, I've still been able to maintain all of the great relationships I had, but it is in that category, Mark, because as I think a little bit now about all of the, you know, 20, 28, 30% of employees are thinking about changing their jobs thinking about moving from one location to another and really taking advantage of the environment we're in these days, where we have maybe a bigger, especially people who are in what I'm going to go ahead and call white collar jobs for the purposes of this conversation, because I do think not everybody has this luxury, but the people who have luxury, more than a quarter are looking for a different job and exploring you know, purpose and passion and what do I really want, what am I here on earth for and all that kind of stuff, which is wonderful. But as you're do, as they're doing that, I hope that people are taking the opportunity to do what I might not have done, which is to say, what do I value most in an employer? In a job, in a career, sure. We all know we have to get paid. Sure, we know we wish we could all have the best manager in, in the world. We all wish for that. Yes, it would be nice if we had a particular, uh, maybe where we, we were in an industry that was hot. You know, everybody wants to be in tech, and we think, well, it's nice to always be on a cutting edge. There are many different attractors that we could find in the workplace. But I think we really need to make sure we take some time to figure out what is it that is going to feed our particular soul. What I learned about myself is that I value those relationships more than anything else. But you couldn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that 20 years ago mm-hmm. or 25 years ago. Yes. But yes.
0: How, how, I mean, how long did it take th- this recognition of, of this mistake to develop? Was it was it gradual? Um, was, was there something that sort of triggered thinking about, oh, yeah, I did leave some good things behind from, from leaving that job? A couple of things. One of them is... So immediately
1: upon leaving that job, I went into a period of a 10 year period of self-employment, which was a good thing. Uh, I had mentioned before I wanted the flexibility to take care of my daughter and uh, still make a great living, which I was blessed to be able to do. uh, And just sort of see what I would be able to do on my own with my own ideas and so on. So all of those things were great. But uh, as time went on especially when I was doing all of this consulting in larger organizations. And I was watching the, organization, the leaders of the organizations to whom I was consulting. And I was seeing a variety of them. And then I was talking to employees as in my work in a variety of places. I began to notice, you know what? Oh, my gosh. I'm not hearing stories that sound like the stories that I was experiencing in that last job that I had, that I, I always liked. I never disliked the job. I already said that. So it was when I had the opportunity to compare that experience to many other employers and many other organizations, many other employee stories. And then another thing I noticed is that I kept having coffee and lunch and dinners with some of the same people that I worked with, you know, five years before, which is not a bad thing. It was just an interesting thing. Those relationships that were so important to me that I have been able to sustain, um, I began to, to value them greater, more as time went on. And of course I developed new friendships, new relationships and so on. But it helped me to see that sometimes one is in a, in a unique special position that feels like a like an embrace and you might not even know it. Yeah.
0: Well, Gina, you know, thank you for sharing that story. And I, and I think what you've brought up about the culture at that company you left, trusted leaders, inclusive environment, that's that's maybe a good springboard to talk about some of the work you do and the ideas that you have now. Um, so uh, again, Gina's company is feels human Inc. And on on the website, you know, it talks about a human first organization. I was wondering, first off, can you define like to you what that phrase means?
1: Yeah. is probably as simplistic as it sounds. I call my company Feels Human because it was meant to clearly just reflect the idea that I think that that's what organizational life should feel like, but it also reflects the fact that I don't think that all employees, or as many as employees as should, have that experience where when they come to work, it feels like (sighs) <sighs> I'm just doing my job. I just, I'm just, i just doing what I do. I'm doing it here. It feels good. I get the job done. I go home. I tell my loved ones. Oh, I, I, in fact, it's such a good experience. I don't feel like I have to go home and tell my loved ones anything more than, you know, let's not know about our private lives. Because people who are not having a good experience at work, when they go home and when they talk to their loved ones and their friends, they talk about, they complain. They talk about what the boss did or didn't do, what the coworkers did or didn't do, why this person made a bad decision, and so on. And those are usually I have learned from my experience, experience in environments in which the human experience doesn't come first. Coming, human experience coming first means that every individual in a company has a manager or should have somebody who uh, is a manager. And what I like to remind managers is they're the designated advocate for that employee. There is no other human being on the planet whose job it is to help support the needs of an individual employee. So to the extent that managers think that way and focus as much on people and human management as they do on task management and getting profits and so on, then it's likely that that might be a human-centered organization. It doesn't even have to, it has to be an environment in which everybody recognizes that the human needs really are critical. They get talked about. They don't get ignored. They're not taboo. If somebody says, I have to go home because my daughter is ill, it doesn't become a big inquiry. Um, and you know what? This is, as you know, the silver lining of the pandemic. I'm seeing more of this sort of human-centered focus where I, I'm hearing CEOs in the Fortune 10 talk about use words like empathy. I didn't even know the word empathy existed in the business dictionary <laughs> for everybody else except psychologists. Um, yeah. The notion that uh, that is all that matters, the human experience in a business organization,
0: is really the simple idea that, that I mean by human Yeah, human first. And human first, I'm I'm guessing maybe you can share more around this. So human first doesn't mean human only. Human first leads to other things that are important, not just around empathy and work environment and treating people like people, but business results, which is still a focus, right?
1: Yeah, which is the ironic and somewhat bizarre thing that we should even have to say, that in my opinion, Mark... We have been under-focusing on the human experience forever, right? And I'm not going to go through the whole history, industrial revolution, how we got here, blah, blah, blah. But we all know that the typical business environment in which we operate today doesn't necessarily feel like this is what humans were designed for. It feels like an environment that was designed to generate, to get more cars off the production line, get more widgets out the door, get more code created, or whatever the business purpose is. Okay, so we have the business purpose. But what if I said that is simply a fact that is easily documented, that employees who are more engaged uh, are more productive, more innovative, and then ultimately have a more positive effect on customer experience? What if I said that it's a fact Business leaders have heard this fact over and over and over, but we have been programmed, I think, in our world to focus so much on profits and profitability in the absolute sense, meaning we think about controlling costs when we think about humans. We think about costs about humans as a cost of doing business. And so we're so focused on that old-fashioned notion that we put a lot of energy into figuring out how to keep costs down, how to control, when in fact what we really need to do is, is liberate employees and give them that space that they need So that those wonderful ideas uh, can get out on the table. They can see them implemented. They can say, hey, you know what? They agree with me. We should paint that thing yellow instead of red. And now look, and I feel so good about myself. I'm just going to work really hard today. Ultimately, I produce perhaps more. I'm happier. My coworkers are happier. My manager is more effective. The customer is happier. There's actually a direct line between this human thing Mm -hmm. and
0: business success. There's an interesting phrase, you know, this expression that, you, that gets used a lot. Um, people might say, well, nothing personal, it's just business.
1: Yes.
0: And like, is that sometimes, unfortunately, just an excuse for mistreating people? Um, we've created or, you know, people create the culture. They create these rules of thumb that we go by in, in, in a business. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? If we were someone were to say, oh, it's just business.
1: Yeah, it's true that that is. That is laughable. It is, <laughs> it is business, but businesses are driven by humans, right? Yes. Whether you're talking mm-hmm. about the humans at the top or the humans at the bottom, if you're looking at a hierarchy, because we have hierarchies, mm-hmm. it's all a human enterprise. So anyone who says that, it gives me right off the bat, I know it, it, right away tells me a lot about how the person is thinking. Not that that person is not a good person, but that that person has been unfortunately educated and exposed to ideas that have, that have a very narrow focus. Mm -hmm. And maybe they went to a top level MBA program in the United States (laughs) because one of my big criticisms and I, you know, of, of some, uh, uh, business school education is that disproportionate overemphasis on units of production. That's, mm-hmm. And then humans fall into that category of units of production. I don't know if you remember when there was a, maybe like in the 1980s, we used to talk a lot about human capital and uh, I, I used to use the expression as well, because it was part of, it was, it was the thing to do at the time and it was ridiculous because yes, humans are part of that whole enterprise, but in a unique sort of way that only humans can be. So if somebody says, you know it's only business it reminds me of this executive at a company where i once worked <clears throat> who used to say routinely i like it when i look out the window at seven o'clock in the evening and i see the parking lot is full of cars that lets me know people are working really hard he used to say that over and over and over it was his it was his tagline it was his way of saying what mattered to him and he was an executive vp so he was right reporting to the ceo a person who's saying that is communicating intentionally, but stupidly, because they're contradicting mm-hmm. the, what effective leadership is about. What they're basically saying is, I just want to see that you're doing. Right? I want you to be doing. And if you see you're doing, I feel good because I think we're, we're making progress. But you and I, Mark, no. And then certainly now in the pandemic, I think it's become clear to people, number one, That the humans that make up your workforce are probably smarter than you give them credit for number one. Number two, we don't need to be monitored at every moment in order to be productive. Number three, we understand how to be productive. And if you will give us some space to be productive in the best way, you will discover we are more productive than we were when we were just within the constrained environments that you might have created for us. And the other thing is that our feelings matter the way we feel matters. You don't have to ask me, you don't have to try to solve all of my personal problems. In fact, I'm not even asking you to, I might prefer not to even tell you what they are, but I would like to know that there's space for for those problems to be, um, for you to help me handle them. If there's something about them where I need help, the interface between life, um, and work, I'm just going to take a sip of water.
0: I I was, I was just going to suggest taking a pause to let you do that. So, um, well, 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 I was just gonna say, you know uh, if I were in an environment where uh, time there was valued over let's say effectiveness, um you know, you could see to your point of people being creative, like I'm gonna call Uber, come pick me up at four o'clock, and then come back and get my car at seven <laughs> thirty That's all that mattered. but There's that. And then, of
1: course, Mark, of course, there's the other side of this, which is as a female leader in that company at the time, though a junior leader, um, I was one of the women who, who was a single divorced, single parent who had to leave the office by a certain time to get to childcare before the dreaded clock. And then you pay the late fee. And of course you're embarrassed because the the, the childcare workers, they need to leave and go home and take care of their families. So that was also very alienating to a portion of the workforce that were, were parents, male or female and caregivers, who were constantly torn between these personal obligations and a desire to do a really good job and to be thought of as doing a really good job. And so there were people who stayed to seven. And I will tell you on those occasions when I stayed late when I could, what I observed was that people would work up until whatever time they felt their their bodies were naturally inclined. And then they would spend the last 30 minutes of the day or whatever until that magical seven o'clock going around from office to office saying hello, shooting the breeze, you know, playing around because they needed the break. They needed to really leave. And also they, they didn't think it was fair. It was obvious. They didn't think it was fair. They were only doing it because there was a power telling them that they had to. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more and, you know, tap into some of your experience and expertise, not just around organizational culture, you know, you've already made, you know, very good points about the connection between a human first organization and business results. Um, you know, on, on your website, there's a phrase there that says very clearly, inclusive leadership matters. But can, can you elaborate on, on that a little bit? You know, the connections beyond this being the right thing to do, to focus on diversity and equity and inclusion, what are some of the connections between um, inclusive leadership and business results.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we think about, I like to define culture as how it feels to work here and how it feels to do business with you. Because I think both employees and customers are really good arbiters of culture. They know what the culture of an organization is very quickly and they can define it and explain what feels good and what doesn't feel good. Inclusive leadership is an interesting thing. Here's the deal, Uh, effective leadership is effective leadership. So, this notion of inclusive leadership, the two words together, it only becomes necessary because we are, in, an, in, we are in, a, in, a, in a current business environment have always been in an environment that isn't fully evolved with regard to this idea of leading a diverse workforce. The workforce has always been diverse. That's not anything new. Humans vary, and therefore, you have a variable workforce. What has become more um, observable or getting more attention, especially in the last year, is that it is true that not all employees in companies have been treated fairly or have the same experience. And therefore, it is true, some organizations are not diverse and some are not inclusive. But inclusion and leadership are just two sides of the same coin, or maybe even the same side of of one coin. You can't consider yourself to be an effective leader if you're not inclusive. You're not an inclusive, if you're not an inclusive leader, you're not an effective leader. So you asked about inclusive leadership, but I would actually say that what I'm talking about here is effective leadership, and that inclusion is just a subset of that, because you don't lead people differently because they look different. You lead all people effectively. And if that's true, then, Mark, that leads to the conclusion that the reason that folks at Gallup say... That you know, up, upwards of seventy percent, or if not more, of managers are not effective in their jobs. Is because many people who are in management and leadership roles are not suited. Number one for the job, they're just selected out of convenience. You know the Peter Principle; they were good technicians, with it, so they managed <laughs> technicians, whatever. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. um, they were there. They might be good managers or leaders, but they've never been adequately trained. Because another thing that we don't necessarily do well as a culture is train our managers to be human leaders, as I said before. So all of these ideas, whether we're talking about, what do we call it, inclusive leadership, or actually my preference, which is to say effective leadership of all, regardless of how we get there, we can't get the business results we desire if leaders are not effective. And so what I have observed from years of measuring employee opinions in organizations across the globe is that there is actually a significant difference between the experiences of of employees or the engagement levels, if you would, of employees as a function of race, ethnicity, gender, disability status, LGBTQ status, a variety of demographic variations of humans. And so what that tells me, if you're using the same measurement, you're asking the same questions about the same environment, and you're getting these variable responses consistently, what that tells me is that not all managers are inclusive, not all managers are effective. Sometimes the two things are correlated, that the ineffective leaders are the ones who are not effective at managing a a diverse uh, group, but not necessarily so. So I encourage leaders, if you want business results, not only do you have to have this general idea of human first, you've got to have effective managers and leaders. Um, The person who told me, who says you should be there at seven o'clock is ineffective because while they imagine that they're getting more production, more output, they're not actually getting more output. What they're getting is more conformity and people not expressing their ideas and their honest opinions. Um, And therefore, they might actually get more output if they had a more human-focused, inclusive approach
0: to leadership. Yeah. And when it comes to diversity and inclusion, it seems diversity is easier to measure in terms of counting people as people identify by gender, by race, by sexual orientation. How do we know if we are inclusive or if we are being more inclusive? That seems like that would be tougher to gauge or measure. What are your thoughts on that? So a couple of things I would say. This whole thing about diversity
1: is an interesting thing to me because ever since in the United States, ever since the 1960s, the EEOC has required that companies of 100 or more report via an EEO1 report the demographic characteristics of their organization in for protected classes. So there's nothing new about this measurement of, of diversity for protected classes. What is different, just I just need to make this point, is that senior leaders of organizations are, for the first time, attending to those data that have existed and been documented for a very, very long time. But yes, it is much easier to say, okay, we've identified a challenge that says we aren't diverse either overall in a certain function, we hire, we do whatever we need to do, we can increase those numbers. The measurement of inclusion is a little more complicated, but let me tell you what I even mean by inclusion in this context. I simply define inclusion as the day-to-day experience of all employees, the extent to which the culture and the leader behaviors uh, create an environment in which all employees can thrive and so on. So how would you measure that? Obviously, then, you're not measuring that by headcount. You're measuring that by by people expressing their opinions about their day-to-day experiences. So this is where employee surveys and focus groups and, heaven forbid, conversations really become the ways that one measure inclusion uh, from an employee perspective. And of course, there's not, it's always, uh, with any kind of measurement, a good idea to have a baseline to know what is it today to decide how often you want to measure it and in what ways, who you're going to ask these questions of, and then be able to see if the things that you're doing uh, are are pressing the right levers and and enhancing those experiences. And that is one way that I would measure uh, inclusion. As an employee experience and I think that's the one way to do it. I think you can also measure um, operational data that might give you some clue as to the experience as well. So there are a lot of other kinds of data besides uh, employee uh, opinion surveys, although those are the easiest I think to get to, you know. So there are other measurements that you can you could take from you could use existing data and archival data, whatever, and you can examine certain patterns. And of course we have the ability to examine social uh, um, social uh, conversations uh, in the sense of internal, you know, social media and organizations do that. We could even do organization network analysis, for example, that explores, well, what are the patterns of connection and relationships between people in this organization? Is it, do these people all stick together over here? Are people related to one another in a diverse across diverse groups? That would be another way. And then I one more way I'll, me- I'll mention, Mark is that, You know, I said earlier that when I think about culture, I don't just think about employees. I think about customers. I love to get customers into this conversation. If I walk into CVS, ACVS, I don't mean to pick on CVS. I like CVS. But if I walk into a store, um, within five minutes, because of the way I think, I can tell what kind of culture exists in that organization, what the day-to-day experience is like for the employees of that company, even though I'm a customer. Because I know, are they going to greet me? Are they, are they look trying to solve a problem when I have one? are they saying, no, I'm sorry, this is the way it is? You know, Do they have that flexibility? Do they look happy? Whatever. Um, customers can also provide a bit of insight about the experience uh, of employees. So those are some of the ways to get to what you said very accurately, which is that it is harder to measure inclusion than it is to measure diversity. You need to measure mo- both, but it is very doable to measure both.
0: And just to recap, they are two very different concepts. Diversity does not guarantee inclusion, unfortunately.
1: No, because if it did, Mark, we would not be even having a conversation. I feel like my goal in life would be to eliminate diversity and inclusion functions. That would happen if we were in a situation where there was equity, where, where we already know we have diversity. The folks who are in these various protected groups, we're not saying, oh my gosh, we're being ignored, we're being undervalued, we're not being seen, our ideas aren't being heard, we're not getting promoted. When we get to that point, we will no longer have diversity and inclusion functions because we will just be leading our entire workforce effectively.
0: Yeah, that's that's well said. And anything of parallels to, to other settings, like you know, the healthcare domain where I work, it would be great to not need a patient safety function or focus or advocacy nonprofits. If one, like when, when the patient safety problem is solved in, in, in ways where harm is no longer occurring. Yeah. Then,
1: but yeah. it's a human, these are human. These are human. These are things that happens happen when humans are present. So there are things that we therefore think as, so they're normal, right? That this is humans create these kinds of challenges. So yes, it's, it's, we need to understand that. Uh, plan for it, and hopefully make it better over time. We, we probably would not; it might not be realistic in that environment to expect we would have zero errors. Errors. We would. We. But what we keep doing is, you keep saying, let's keep reducing the, the unforced errors. Let's have the protocols that would minimize that. Similarly, with some of the things that we're talking about, I do think we'll get to a day where a lot of the ideas that seemed that seem novel because they have not previously been attended to, will not feel novel. And so someone said to me recently, oh, I'm, I'm suffering from diversity and inclusion fatigue. And I said, oh yeah, well, good. Um, that's really interesting because I've worked in corporate America forever, 30 something years, and I've been a brown woman in those years. And on a personal level, I've been fatigued with these issues because I don't experience them. But what you mean is that for this last single year after the death of George Floyd, people have learned some new things and are focusing on this issue in new ways. Well, then I don't I don't accept that you could use the word fatigue to describe it because you've just been dealing with it for a year.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, And, you know, I see sometimes cringeworthy comments on. Uh, LinkedIn, and um, you know, I think uh, as as somebody who tries to recognize, I try to recognize my own privilege uh, as a, a middle aged straight white guy. I don't, you know, I, I you know, and, and I recognize that um, sometimes in others, where I think what I hear you saying is like, well, they've got the luxury of saying, well, I don't want to think about those issues today, where other people do not have that luxury or that privilege, right?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And by the way, you know, the word privilege, it serves a purpose and it is accurate. So it should be used. But I'm also one of those people who recognize that there's very little value in pushing people into a corner and making them feel worse than they already might feel about something. So I don't usually, I actually hardly ever have to use the word privilege because it's not part of what I focus on. But to your point of when I say Gina, when I I can speak with 100% confidence about Gina and say, in, the, in all the years I've been in corporate America, except for those years where I was at that company that I was my biggest mistake, I was often having to do the poker face thing of pretending like I didn't have, I didn't experience something that I experienced. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, when one is part of a group that for whatever reason has a history where you know that you're treated a little, a little differently than other people you deal with this stuff every day you just can't have you can't say oh I'm not gonna deal with it today nobody's gonna notice I'm a black woman it just doesn't work that way well and you but but for most of us I will say this mark most of us and this is the one time you'll ever hear me speak on behalf of all black women Um <laughs> mm-hmm most of us, we cannot also cannot afford to spend eight hours, 10 hours of our day thinking about this. If that's Mm -hmm. what we did, we couldn't be personally uh, uh, successful. So in fact, the irony is we
0: try not to spend as uh, any time as we would prefer not to spend any
1: time thinking about it.
0: (laughs) Sure. Um, One other thing I want to ask you, and I, I, I saw you wrote a blog post. I want to hear some of your thoughts on this. Um, why I need to talk about race at work? Because some of the the, the cr- other cringy category of comments I'll see on LinkedIn is you know a, a black woman will share her perspectives, and then you know here come I'll say you know, here come the white people saying why why are you always uh, f- talking about race and this is unprofessional and blah 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 and I'm like, oh, it's, it's it's cringy but so you know how, how do you answer that question of of, of why you need not all day long, as, as you said, yeah, but yeah. to talk about race. Why, what are your perspectives?
1: Yeah, well,
0: another one of those interesting things, Mark, is that I never
1: personally talked about race until last year, about, about race at work until last year, because that is not the way the business corporate culture has is set up. So most people of color that I know what not only would we prefer not to talk about it, there has never really been room to talk about it. One of the things that has truly changed in this last year is that leaders have been asking for the first time, well, what do you mean when you say you've been having a bad experience? What does that mean exactly? And when they have heard the responses that that, that some if they've asked and they've heard the responses, I'm sure a portion of them have just been gobsmacked. They're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is what you've been experiencing in my company, right? There's that. And then there's been another portion of people who might say, gosh, if it were that bad, you would have said something a long time ago. And that's a whole, you know, so that's people, not everybody reacted the same. But I do think many leaders asked for the first time and they got this feedback. So, number one, it is factually incorrect and historically incorrect to say that people who are, uh, you know, underrepresented talk about these issues a lot, because if we, number one, are afraid to, number two, we have, it would we, we need to really keep our brain power to focus on other things. And it is only in the last year that the space has been made where people have asked. Now, if you're talking about the social media and LinkedIn and so on, it is also only in the last year, I think that I have seen people talk about these stories in public. And when we have, talked about the stories in public, that's when we have seen from, from the general public, meaning LinkedIn or wherever we are, that we will have some portion of people who do what you describe, which is to say, why are you always talking about race? So I did once write this blog where I truly was really hurt when a friend of mine, in effect, asked that question of me on the one, on this article that I had written, actually for Harvard Business Review, uh, a, a journal... A, an art of a, a, a publication that vets everything it publishes, insists upon accuracy and all these other things. So it's a high standard about an important issue. And this is, in effect, what the person has. So I said, I said exactly what I have already said to you. Actually, we don't talk about this a lot. But maybe had we had the space to talk about these things for decades and generations, they wouldn't have festered to get to the point where we're like, oh, there's an eruption that at least that's how it feels. Um, And yet, even now, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think all we can ask any of us, anybody of any race, of any color, of any age, of any sexual orientation or identity, is just allow some space and some grace for natural conversations. And then as people get more comfortable with these things, they'll realize that it's silly to have to say that any aspect of a human experience should be taboo uh, in the workplace.
0: Yeah and, and you know my advice for what it's worth for people who are uncomfortable seeing posts about topics like this on LinkedIn you can just keep scrolling you yeah. they, you don't have to comment or show disapproval or try to invalidate what anybody else's perspective is like hopefully they would read and learn and reflect and then maybe scroll on but that's that's always an option
1: yeah, social media i you know is an interesting um A whole interesting topic in and of itself, because as you and I have both seen how things have evolved, I do think that, you know, if you compare LinkedIn to some other social media, um, you know, uh, environments, communities, that it does do a good job of self-management, meaning I don't have to deal with a lot of crap on LinkedIn. Most of the time, I'm just there talking about work and the people I interact with are too. And then they will be the trolls, and I think of those as being sort of in the in the in the. the they're not the majority; they don't have the loudest voices. And I, I, I hope that we we all of us who use LinkedIn will keep protecting it so that it can be at least this one place that we have where we can talk about important things and people can share ideas and not have any vitriol because it doesn't belong.
0: Yeah. So bringing back to your phrase, you know, the human first organization, because these are human topics, they are therefore, I think, workplace organizational topics.
1: Yes, it's a a very, it's a novel. And by the way, we're in the United States, of course, and we're even within the United States, I I always assume that at least 50% of the people with whom I interact will disagree with what we just said because we know the reality is we're not a monolith as a country. We We got different experiences, different points of view. So we shouldn't even expect that everybody would agree with that simple statement. But we can certainly set it as an aspiration. And then once we go outside the borders of the United States and we go even north to Canada, let's say, we have to remember that this is at this point been a particularly American conversation. Because then if you go to another part of the world, you discover that minority, a word which I don't use, by the way, means something completely different or there are different social norms. What can you talk about LGBTQ status? In fact, talking about that would be illegal in some countries. Um, and even if you go to the United Kingdom, which is also just across the pond, you have to have a completely different conversation because of their colonial background and so on. So, you know, that is actually an argument I'm making for the fact that all of us, each of us is always better off when we broaden our horizons, whether we're broadening our horizons within our county or state, you know, or our, our, the south versus the north. The world is not usually what we think it is from the perspective of our little pinhead, you know? So. <laughs> um,
0: well, thank you, Gina. That's uh, well said. A lot of uh, really interesting food for thought there. So our guest today has been Dr. Gina Cox. Uh, her company is Feels Human Inc. Again, you can uh, find the website at feelshuman.com. And the book coming out 2022 leading inclusion. We'll look forward yeah. to that. So Gina, thank you so much for being a guest here today.
1: Oh, Mark, it has been an absolute pleasure. You know, I can talk about these things all day. Love it. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks again to Gina Cox for being our guest today. For more information about her, her company, her upcoming book, and more, you can go to markraben.com slash mistake113. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.